All right, the rest of us, let's turn to Romans chapter 2. We're going to finish Romans 2 this week, I think. We'll see. Let's just read the passage first. We'll begin in verse 17. We'll read through the end of the chapter. This morning we'll pay most attention to verses 25 through 29. But we'll begin reading verse 17 and we'll read through. Remember, he's talking now to Jews. And they were mistakenly, many of them, wrongly trusting in things like the law, good things, the law, the Bible. Um, They were trusting in the fact that they were Jews, descended from Abraham, and born into the right family. Um, And they were trusting in these things as wrongly believing that they were right with God because of it. And they agreed with everything Paul said in Romans 1 about the sinners out there, but it didn't apply to them. And of course, Paul being the evangelist that he is and a desire to see his own people, the Jewish people, come to know Christ in a saving way and to understand the gospel of grace, he's calling them out on it and showing them how tragically wrong they are. So beginning in verse 17... If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge of truth, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For just as it is written, the name of God is blaspheme among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly Nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on the word preached. Father, we need your help now, please. We depend upon you for all things good and right and true and spiritual. And so we ask for your spirit now to help us not just 
read these words and know what it says, but to know what it means and how it applies to us. We ask you, Spirit, to work in our hearts as we see we need from verse 29, that you would be changing us and helping us become more like Christ. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Do me a favor and look back at chapter 1 and verse 16. Remember verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1 set the theme of the gospel and what the gospel is for Paul's entire letter here to the church in Rome. And he says in verse 16, I, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And I, have us, I bring us there to hone in on that phrase, power of God for salvation. Or perhaps power of God unto salvation. The power of God in the gospel that results in salvation. In other words, salvation requires God's power. And then what Paul will introduce in chapter 2, verse 29, is a concept that he won't fully flesh out for a while in the book of Romans. But it's this idea that if someone is going to be saved, the Spirit of God has to work in their hearts the power of God. And that he does that through the gospel. But it requires the power of God working in the person's heart. Because salvation is entirely dependent on God. We cannot save ourselves. This is his whole point in the first three chapters. You're a sinner. You're without the ability to save yourself. God must save you. So you need the Spirit to work in you. In order for us to be saved, what we see in the book of Romans is that God had to do something for us through His Son. Okay? So He sends His Son who becomes a human being and lives life as a human being perfectly for us. And then He goes to the cross and He dies for us, paying the penalty for our sin. Then He's raised again. We trust in Him, right? And we're forgiven of our sins and we're given... uh, uh, his spirit in, in our hearts and he, he, uh, uh, we have his righteousness credited to our account. But in addition to that, what we're going to be introduced to at the end of chapter 2 is that God had to do something by his spirit in us. So not just through Jesus for us, but it has to be the spirit in us. You know what the most frustrating part of evangelism is? If you've ever work just trying to convince somebody of Jesus or calling a sinner to repent and trust in Christ. The most frustrating aspect of that whole endeavor is that you do not have the ability to change the person's heart. You can't do the necessary work in that person's heart that will get them to the point where they say, you're right, I'm a sinner and I need Jesus. See, that's why evangelism plans and structures and 
programs, I guess, can be helpful to a degree if you understand that it's not that way that you're presenting it that's going to be the thing that gets the person all of a sudden to believe in Jesus. You're entirely dependent on the Spirit of God to, for that person to be saved. True salvation requires the power of God by His Spirit working within the heart of a person to bring them to salvation. That's what he mentions in chapter 2, verse 29. I say just, just kind of introducing a topic here you won't get to really till later, almost into chapter 8, or as we would call it, you know, 2027. Um, no, it won't take that long to get there. That idea of circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. So we're going to learn what that means. We'll get to that in just a minute. So remember, they're trusting in the fact that they have the law and they're trusting in the fact that they're Jews. And Paul brings up circumcision because that was the sign of the covenant that God gave to Abraham and his descendants. And they're trusting in the fact that they're outwardly, physically circumcised and part of the descendants of Abraham and therefore they are in the right family and therefore they're going to pass through the judgment and therefore, of course, they're going to go into the kingdom and that's wrong. And so he really hones in on this issue of circumcision in verse 25 through 29. So we've got to talk about circumcision, which admittingly is an awkward topic. One I told the guys beforehand that I'll, I'll use just power, instead of talking about it, we'll just put PowerPoints up on the screen for you all in this issue of circumcision. I'm kidding about that, of course. <laughs> but we've got to talk about it because it is crucial to understand the role that God had and intended in this issue of circumcision for the people of God and how they're wrongly viewing it, okay? They're relying on this fact, which essentially, again, just says that they're part of all the Abrahamic blessings because they're they're, they're, they have that sign of the covenant. The first time circumcision shows up in the Bible is Genesis chapter 17 in verses 10 and 11. And this is the Lord speaking directly here to Abraham. And he says, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you, me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Catch that. A sign of the covenant now. Outward physical sign. Later on the book of Leviticus and the Mosaic law, they're told it's on the eighth day that they were to do this with all of, their, uh, all of the Jewish-born males. Paul's going to talk a lot more about this in chapter 4, so I don't want to preach that sermon here, and he's going to return to this idea. But it's very important for us right now just to catch that Genesis 17, when God gives the sign of the covenant, is after Genesis 12 and 15, where God established the covenant with Abraham. Calls him out, chapter 12, blesses him, promises him descendants. You're going to be a blessing. All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Chapter 15 and verses 5 and 6, he had promised Abraham a descendant. Remember that didn't happen. 
So I think Abraham's getting worried about this. Is this ever going to happen? And so what God does is he brought him outside and he said, look toward heaven. Number the stars if you were able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And then Abraham believed the Lord and what did the Lord do? He counted it to him as righteousness. In other words, he declared him righteous. Now, what are we talking about in the main theme in the book of Romans is the righteousness of God that we need revealed in the gospel. And we've talked about this, that, you, that when you trust in Christ, he declares you righteous. That means essentially two things. You're forgiven of all your sins, so it's like you've done nothing wrong. Sins erased. And on the other hand, he gives you all of God's righteousness into your account, so to speak, like a spiritual righteousness bank account and fills that account to the full. You have all the righteousness you need and he declares you righteous so it's as though you've done everything right, right? So just as we sang that song from John Newton, John Newton was the one who originally wrote it, how vile we appear to God in and of ourselves, but what God did is provide us the righteousness of Jesus. So then we trust in him, we get his righteousness, right? So now when he sees us, he sees not the vileness, but the righteousness of his own son. So we have all the righteousness we need. Well, the first recorded person in the Bible to be declared righteous, though the ones, the faithful previous to Abraham had been declared righteous before God, but the first one where this phrase is used was Abraham. And he was declared righteous two chapters before God gave him the sign of circumcision, which means he was already righteous before circumcision, which tells us circumcision was not given to the Jews as a means of being righteous. And not only that, what we read in Galatians chapter 3 earlier, the law... Did Abraham have the Mosaic law? If you know your Bible, shake your head no. (laughs) The law didn't come for over 400 years after Abraham. So the question Paul would have for the Jews is this. If your forefather Abraham didn't have circumcision and didn't have the law, but he was justified by God, then how did that happen if justification comes by circumcision in the law? See, it doesn't make any sense. That's what he's going to argue. He'll flesh that out completely in chapter 4. Abraham was justified entirely, completely, by faith alone in the promise of God. So that everyone who has ever been saved or will be saved, I don't care if you were a Jew living in Israel with the temple and the sacrifices and all of the things going on, there was n- none of them were justified by works of the law. So you never look at your Bible and say, okay, in the Old Testament, people were right with God by keeping the law. And in the New Testament, now that's the gospel. So people are, are, are right with God by grace or by faith. That's wrong. 
No one's ever been right with God by keeping the law. That's exactly what he'll say in Romans chapter 3. By the works of the law, no human being will be justified, not Jew or Gentile. It's all by faith. It's hearing the promise of God, specifically about the descendant of Abraham to come. Now we know who that descendant is, right? Who's that descendant? Who's the offspring? Jesus. So now we, we know who it is. We saw it all work out in Scripture until Christmas, and we see the descendant of Abraham born, and here he is now, the one who's the blessing to the nations, who lived a perfect life and died an atoning death, and he rose again. Now we believe in him, and it's through that that we're justified. And we never want to mingle that simple beautiful gospel truth that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from the works of the law. We don't want to mix our faith and works when it comes to justification. It is not the means, the law is not the means, uh, circumcision wasn't the means of, of getting right with God or staying right with God. This is also what Paul said in, in Galatians 3. He said, you're so foolish, Galatians. I mean, this is, can you imagine if I stood up here and just called you all a bunch of fools? But Paul had that ability to just say, why, why are you so foolish? You began in the spirit. Now you're going to be made perfect in the flesh. In other words, okay, you come, you come to saving uh, salvation through faith in Christ alone, and now all of a sudden you're going to be made perfect in another way. That's not the way it works. It's all through faith alone. That's how the righteous live. Now, we will get to the point where we say, we'll learn that a person who truly has faith in Christ, apart from the works of the law, begins to now live according to the law. They start to do good works. But as we'll see, just beginning in Romans chapter 2 at the last verse, that starts in the heart and works its way out into the life now. But we never get it messed up as though, is that it's those, those works that we start doing now that are somehow adding into that righteousness account. See, the way that righteousness account is where God declares his righteousness, you can't add to it and you can't take away from it. So we're not adding to it to be right with God or stay right with God. It's a result of his work in us by the Spirit. But again, we almost got to wait till chapter 8 to fully talk about that again. Life in the Spirit, not by the letter, God working this out in us. But when we're talking about being justified, being right with God in a right relationship with him, there is nothing we do other than trust in Jesus Christ. Paul's talking about this issue in circumcision, making sure they understand that it isn't their physical descendancy from Abraham that's going to bring them into a right relationship with God. That there is such a thing as a, a Jewish Gentile. We'll get to that in just a minute. Now, let me find where I am in my notes. circumcision was so important, and the reason I say that we have to talk about this, circumcision was so important to the Romans 2 thinker, okay, this Jew, and to the Galatians Jews that Paul was writing to, that even what they were teaching at that point, some of them that had come to, they believed that Jesus was, their, was the Messiah, but they wanted to mingle the law 
with faith in Jesus. And they were kind of getting into this convoluted message of it's kind of faith and kind of grace, but it's also works. We see that in many major religions even to this day where they will admit, yes, it's grace and it's faith, but also works. And you kind of combine those things together and they all equal in the end justification. Paul's talking to them. And, the, and, and circumcision was so important to them that when Gentiles came to, the, to faith in Jesus, they were requiring them to be, to be circumcised as well. I'm talking about seeker insensitivism, huh? When they heard about that, that probably gave them second thoughts. Uh, Jesus did say, count the cost, right? Uh, But they needed to be circumcised because that's how you get right with God and be in the right covenant community. And not only that, then you need to assume much of the Mosaic law. They were called Judaizers. So if you've ever heard that terminology, that's who he's talking about. They're Judaizers. They wanted to take Gentiles and try to make them Jews, mainly externally through circumcision and an external conformity to the law. So Paul says to any Gentile who would be considering that option, like maybe this is what I should do. That's who he's writing to in Galatians. That's why he's so upset. He brought them the gospel of grace and now here, what are they doing? They're, 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 they're listening to these voices that are telling them they need more than Jesus. And he says to them in Galatians chapter 5, verses 2 to 4, he says, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, I think I have a slide for this one. Do I, Wyatt? Galatians 5, 2 to 4, there we go. If you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision, here's the problem, he's obligated to keep the whole law. So you're severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. In other words, remember what we've already said. There's only two paths of righteousness to, get, to be declared righteous for God by the law keeping. You do it yourself. And we've already established you cannot do that because we're sinners. Or it's through faith in Christ. It's either Christ or yourself. And he's saying to these people that are considering this option, He's saying, if you take circumcision, that's not a small thing. That shows that you're not fully, completely, and entirely trusting in Christ. And if you want to take circumcision, then you've got to assume all of the law. And the requirement of all of the law is complete righteousness. You've got to to fulfill it completely. And that means you've fallen away from grace. You're severed from Christ. You have no hope of being justified before God. This seems to be the main thing in chapter 2 of Romans that Paul is addressing here in verse 25 where he says, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So your circumcision, you're in the covenant community of God, you're right with God, and that'll work if you complete if you complete the law entirely. You're right, that would work. But it can't work because we're sinners, right? So once you would break the law, which everyone already had, but even, even if you just started from there and you broke the law, then you're, then you're uncircumcised, essentially. And remember, he's talking to Jews. It's like, you're, you're in the world again. You're under the wrath of God. You're not in the covenant community of God. And he gives this 
scenario in verses 26 27 so he says so if a man who is uncircumcised that is a gentile who keeps the precepts of the law will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you of the written code and circumcision but break the law in other words if if you're uncircumcised again you break the law that person or if you're yeah that person who is uncircumcised that gentile who keeps the law hypothetically will actually, by his keeping the law, condemn you who broke the law, which would be everybody uh, among the Jews. In other words, what he's getting to and where he drives at the main point is verses 28 and 29, where he's saying, your circumcision is irrelevant now. Look at what he says. He says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. You're missing it. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. These Jews who had been raised in this Jewish culture, there were many advantages to that. And Paul will bring some of these advantages out, but friends, there were disadvantages too. Because what they were doing is they were, they were saturated in these things and they began to think that their right standing with God was all a manner, matter of their external being or the, the fact that they were descended from Abraham. And the same thing happens, I think, in Christian circles. There's a great advantage for kids growing up in a Christian home because they're exposed to the truth of God and the gospel. There can also be a disadvantage to it if they get the wrong idea about everything that's happening and everything they're seeing. If they start to believe that Christianity is essentially what I do or what I don't do. If they start to think that their true Christianity is is just external and, and all these outward things, if they get that wrong impression, they're gonna miss what Paul is saying here. The true salvation is a matter of the heart first. As we've said before, if we want to be saved, we don't clean ourselves up outwardly first. We come to Him with all of our corruption and receive the salvation that He promises. You'll notice in those verses 20 and 29, He makes a clear distinction between outward, right, and physical, and inward in the heart. The letter or the law and the spirit. The external and the internal. There is a, there's a massive difference in those things. And true Christianity and true religion and true being a true Jew, even under the old covenant, would have begun in a new heart that then results now in living for God and doing the right things. True Christianity is always a matter of the heart first and throughout before we get to anything else. Isn't this what Jesus said to the woman at the well? John chapter 4, verses 23 to 24, he says, But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. 
For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. The problem with the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day and the ones that Paul is referring to in Romans 2, for them, everything was external, including their circumcision and their keeping of the law. And so... No matter where they worshipped or what they did, it was all in vain because their hearts were far from God. As a matter of fact, this is exactly what Jesus said to them in Matthew chapter 15, verses 7 and 9. He said, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Oh, they worshiped God. They showed up for the services. They did what was required for them in worship. But God, Jesus said, that's in vain they're doing this. They're teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men, which often happens, by the way, in the circles where everything is external. In the Christian circles where it's all about what you do and don't do and what you wear or don't wear, what your hair looks like or what it doesn't look like or who you associate with or what you don't, all those things, everything that's on the external, they end up getting more and more commandments from men that they're saying are commandments from God. Some of you have come up in circles like that, so you know what I'm saying. And fundamentalism where they have rules for their rules and then they make more rules for those rules. And they teach them like they come from God and they're man-made. And all the time, for many of them, their hearts remain completely unchanged. They honor God with the external, but their heart is far from God. And that's a very real problem. When I was in Rockford and part of my ministry through our church there, I helped a a group of men who were in a drug rehab program uh, with the rescue mission and I'd pick them up, take them to church and uh, we'd have Bible study stuff and we had a softball team and that that I led. But I was always looking for a new program to begin for them and even thought about, man, it would be great if we could start something. There was only one Christian-based program in that city for uh, men and women who were, uh, got trapped in drugs and alcoholism. And, um, that's actually a nationwide, I'm not going to mention it, but it's a nationwide program. There's one here in town. And it's attached to the fundamentalist movement. And I remember researching it because I thought, well, I want to get these guys help. So... I researched it, and on their webpage, they had the founder. Now, the founder was from that city, Rockford, and, um, and it showed a, it had a before and after picture of him, so like kind of a before Jesus picture and an after Jesus picture. Now, the before Jesus picture, he had long hair and uh, looked kind of scruffy and gruff and and that's his before picture. And then it said, basically, look what, look what God's done. Afterwards, of course, he had short hair. And it was neatly combed. And he's wearing a coat and tie. And I thought, that's the problem right there. 
You've already missed it. You've already missed it. You're thinking entirely externally with these guys. And so we decided not to initiate with them any kind of partnership or working with them because what those men needed is not a haircut or a suit or the King James version of the Bible or to sing only hymns from a hymn book. That's not what they needed. They needed a heart change. And believe it or not, many Christians come to Christ with long hair and they keep it <laughs> to the glory of God. This is what Paul is pointing towards in verse 29, almost just hinting at a Jew or a Christian, a real Christian, is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. First time we see now the Spirit showing up for salvation here, because the Spirit, salvation required the Father, Son, and Spirit, Son, to redeem and spirit to apply the work of redemption into the hearts of God's people. There he is. Circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. Now, what is circumcision of the heart? That's a really good question. We don't want to be vague here. I don't think we want to be vague. We want to be real clear on what Paul is talking about here. Because if we're honest, it's kind of a a weird concept and we're thinking, what does this even mean? Well, we know exactly what it means. Because God through Moses said this is what he was going to do many, 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 many years before Paul's writing Romans 2 in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Now, in this context in Deuteronomy, the book Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. That's literally what Deuteronomy means, the second giving of the law. They had already blown it in the wilderness years and he's re-giving, re-establishing the covenant. But Moses is not a great coach in one sense because he's not in these chapters and this verses telling them, you can do this, guys. You're going to keep this law this time. Boy, you're going to keep the covenant. As a matter of fact, complete opposite. He's telling them, you're going to blow it. You're going to break this and you're going to sin and God's going to bring upon you the curses of this covenant and he's going to scatter you everywhere. But in the midst of that, he brings out this verse, Deuteronomy 36. Now listen to this. And the Lord your God will one day circumcise your heart. So there it is. Circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. And what will be the result of this? This is how we can understand what the circumcision of the heart by the spirit that Paul's talking about is when he tells us what will result from it. Listen, and when that happens, he'll do that so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. That'll be the result. See, what we have to understand is that by By nature now, when you're born into this world, by your very nature, you are born a God-hater. 
That may seem strange to you because maybe as you look back at your life, you think, I never remember a time hating God. I never said I hated God. How, did, how was my hatred of God expressed? In the fact that you broke his law and sinned over and over against him. That's the expression of a heart that says no to God because I want to do what I want to do. That means we hate God. That means we don't come to God. We don't seek God. This is where Paul's leading now. He'll get to this in chapter 3 and really just show us our utter depravity and the real problem that we are in. Our hearts are turned against God because they're hardened against Him. They're fallen they, they follow after sinful desires. You ever heard somebody say, follow your heart? Don't ever do that because your heart is deceitful. Jeremiah said it's deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can understand it? It's completely fallen. It hates God. It hates his law. It wants to be its own ruler. And so when you get a God coming into the equation, it says, I'm your ruler. I made you. So you live for me. I created you to obey me and glorify me and to, here it is, love me. To love me. And that love expressed in saying things like, God, I want to live for you. I want to say no to these things and yes to you. Why? Not to be right with you because I love you. Well, our hearts have sin and that's the problem. And so what the Spirit does is circumcise the heart. And he frees it up now. Cuts away the sinfulness and frees your heart now so that you can truly fulfill the law. And how is the law summarized? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. And your neighbor is yourself. So it takes the work of the Spirit to make someone who loves God. This is why later on in Romans chapter 8, he'll say, all things work together for good for those who love God. And that was the work of the Spirit. The Spirit has to invade the heart of a person and change that heart and tune it to the direction of God so that they will now love Him and honor God and cherish God. This is why for some of you in this room, when you're singing songs and you're reflecting on the lyrics and you're thinking, that's my God. He did that for me. Your hearts are warmed to him. This is why sometimes when you're listening to a message and a scripture verse is popping off the page at you and you're like, you're feeling that, oh, thank you, God. Thank you, God. That's that love for God now. The Spirit did that work in you. You were incapable of that true love for God And these Jews that he's talking about, they have all this external conformity, but they don't love him. And that's the problem. And so God has to work in us by his spirit to turn us from God rejectors and God haters and idolaters. Everything we've learned in Romans 1, rebels against God to those who love him. That's something that the spirit 
must do. Now, you may be sitting here this morning, I don't know, and maybe you're thinking, I don't think I love God like that. I don't know, and maybe that's expressed in the way that you will not live for Him. And you're living for yourself in sin. Maybe it's public sin, maybe it's private. Maybe it's just what you know about you. But you're sitting here thinking, I need that to happen. Maybe all of my religion is external. And I need the Spirit to make that change in my heart so that I love God now and so I want to live for Him. So I want to address if there's anyone in here listening to this now or those listening on um, the YouTube channel or whoever, if that's your condition, you're asking, what should I do? Because we've already said, well, we can't do this for ourselves. This has to be the work of the Spirit. So what do I do to have that happen? Because I want that to happen. I want to love God. Friends, the answer is this. You're going to look to Jesus Christ and you're going to ask Him to give you His Spirit to cause this to happen. And I base that on something Jesus Himself said. In John chapter 7, verses 7, uh, 37 to 39, Jesus stood up at this feast that everyone was at. So the great day, the, the, uh, the week-long feast there in Jerusalem, they would have been there. Everybody's there standing around. So picture this scene. Jesus himself stands up and he cries out. It's almost like he couldn't stand it anymore. He saw all these people going through this external uh, dry, formal worship, and yet he knew their hearts were far from God and they didn't love God. And he couldn't take it anymore. And he stood up and he cries out and he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And we say, Jesus, what does that mean? John says, thank you for asking. Let me clarify. Verse 39. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. What is Jesus saying? Is your soul thirsty? I mean, it has loves for all the worldly things. Like, like John says, do not love the world. Or the things of the world. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. And I, in this context, connected here, I think he means your love for the Father is not in you. Not if you love the world. You can't have both loves. You can't have love God and loving the things that he hates, which he is very clear about in the Bible. You can't have both. It's one or the other. Jesus made this clear to people. It's me or this. That's it. You can't have both. You can't serve two masters. You're going to either love the one and what? Hate the other. Or you're going to hate the one and love the other. But you can't have two masters. It's not possible, says Jesus. And the issue is love. The issue is whom you're going to love and whom you're going to serve through that love and obedience. If you love the world then that's your master. You're its servant. If you love sin, you're a servant of sin. 
If you love God, you become a servant of God. And Jesus says, here's the answer to that. You come to me now. You come to me and you believe in me and you trust me. And guess what? Out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. And by that, I mean my spirit. So if you want Romans 2 verse 29 to be you and you want the spirit to work in in your heart, then you go to Jesus and he makes everything happen that needs to happen so that you place your trust in him. See, all of the gospel, even when we talk about the Father's role and the Spirit's role, the way God has designed things, it's always going to beeline you right to Jesus Christ then. So if I need the Spirit and I need a new heart, I go to Christ. That's what happens. This is why we sing a song, and I'll close with this. I love these lyrics. Come, ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Romans 1 and 2 people, Romans 3 people, come now. Come to Jesus, ready, stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. He is able, he is able, he is willing, doubt no more. Come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous, not the righteous sinners Jesus came to call. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. This he gives you, this he gives you, tis the Spirit's rising beam right into your heart, making it new, causing you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Let's pray. Father, we love your word. It is truth. And it is living and active and powerful. Sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts right through the external baloney. gets right into our hearts. We praise you for that. Spirit, we pray that even this morning you would draw people to Jesus We would leave here encouraged in the gospel. We even pray now that as we take the Lord's table, that we would be able to do it by faith in Him and therefore receive the blessings promised through it. We ask this in His name. Amen.